This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. I first talked with Rosalie Han back in 2000. That's 20 years ago. And since then, she's written many more books and we've chatted about those too. But I think this is the book everyone was waiting for. Welcome back, Rosalie. Thank you, Jan. It's good to be here. Your debut novel, The Dressmaker, introduced the character Tilly Dunnage from Dungatar. Not only was it a bestseller, it was made into a movie. Now, Rosalie, did you think the eccentric nature of your characters were correctly cast in the movie? Yeah, I did. Because it's a different medium, it's a completely visual thing as opposed to reading words off a page. You kind of have to let go and you have to trust that they will do the right thing by the story and the essence of the story. And I had a good producer, good screenwriter, and they did that. So I thought that the characters or the actors took those roles on and made them theirs and they were good. They were funny and they were heartfelt and, you know, they they just entered into the spirit of the whole story, all those actors. So I've got absolutely nothing to to complain about. Well, over the last 20 years, I've read many other books, but there are some characters and actions I remember stronger than others. I still can't look at a silo and not think of Teddy McSwinney's death and the revenge Tilly took on the township of Dungatar. Did you feel it was a story untold or was it pressure from your readers for more? It was both because I wrote The Dressmaker as part of a course, a writing course, and so the, the, the main aim was to get to write a novel and just to get to the end, and I've achieved that. So I wanted to go back and make Tilly a little more rounded. I wanted to flesh her out, give her an emotional, psychological development, a point of view. I wanted the characters to um, come back and interact with her and sort of finish business off get get like settle the dust because when she fled Dungatar she fled another past so the dressmaker's secret addresses all of that and it kind of dwells on the same themes but more so so the the whole idea between the purpose of costume the purpose of couture what actually is fashion and what that does to people whether it's a lie or whether it tells the truth those things were all talked about in the dressmaker's secret and I feel I feel quite satisfied about that now about my themes being you know explored a bit more so in the dressmaker's secret it's two years later and a handsome stranger arrives at Dungatar what does he see what's Dungatar like now well it's it's still in this basically the same state that Tilly left it in when she fled a blaze behind her. People are rebuilding the town exactly the same way it was. The rebuilding of the town is symbolic and the ending of the book speaks volumes about those people and their accomplishments. If any. Well, then we have uh, this handsome stranger. So he's a lawyer, Arlen O'Connor. What's he in Dungatar looking for? He's looking for Tilly Dunnage because it takes everyone a while to figure out exactly what his intentions are and that you have to decide for yourselves whether they're sinister or not. 
uh, he inadvertently brings to the surface what she did to the, the people of those towns. If Tilly's not there, where is Tilly? Oh, my goodness, she's, she's hiding in plain sight. She's in Collins Street working in a salon and it's 1953 and it's coronation year. There's great excitement about the crowning of Princess Elizabeth and there's a great deal of excitement on the Collins Street Hill about the coming opportunities for fashion. And so that is where we find her. We and Sergeant Farrett rediscover Tilly Dunnage and the, and the, and the, the dressmaker's secret kind of evolves from that point. Because you, you realise, you know, sort of Melbourne does have a lot of big occasion. Well, there's the Lord Mayor's Ball, but there's Miss Moomba and there's Miss Australia and the, the gown of the year. But she wasn't really enjoying it. She wasn't being used as, as a designer. Well, she had to follow the orders of Madame Flock and Velda. Yeah, but she had a future to build. She had no money. She was bereft. So she had to start us from scratch. And so starting from scratch, that meant getting a job where she could do what she did. And it's the only thing she, she can do. She can't do anything else. She can only sew and design. And it suited her. It served her purpose. Where she lived, what she did with her life and where she worked kept things very neat and compact. She didn't have to travel far or do much or expose herself a great deal. So it was quite a suitable place for her to be for the time being. And, and further to that, she knew it was only a matter of time because your past is prologue and it will catch up with you. Into this couture business comes a customer who requests a gown from Tilly with the most unusual body shape. And Tilly recognises that immediately. Who is it? Oh, that's good old Sergeant Farrett. Again, couture takes central stage and the purpose of frocks and how dresses and gowns all connect everybody and keep everybody there and it's a thing that everybody wants and it's a way to find Tilly. So, of course, that's the way you do it. You wouldn't want to bowl up to her on the street. She would flee again. He uses the excuse of new frock to, to find her, which is quite a dangerous thing to do in the 1950s. Yes, well, homosexuality, as you say in the book, was only four years early that it stopped being a hanging offence. Scary time. And there's a lot of things to be scared about because it's uh, Sergeant Farrett connects Tilly back to the McSweeney family. They've come from Dungata and it's a large family and Teddy was the eldest and much-loved son and he died. There was a lot of blame put on Tilly for that. How would you describe the, the McSwinney family? Well, they're working class. They're also a united group and they represent truth and goodness and they always have. They did in Dunkatar and they still do. And they also represent those, those people that don't conform or can't conform to what's expected in the 1950s and what, you know, the, the social classes hypocrites all yes. expected people to to be but they are a big loving morally upright sincere group of people who are very very happy and they they all do worthwhile things they've all got jobs they go to school they they were the recyclers in Dungata they were they were good but of course because they're good they make everybody else feel bad or understand they're bad so therefore you must blame them and accuse them of doing things that they haven't really done to deflect attention away from your own shame they've got a lot of kids they've got pet mice they've got chooks they've got a horse and they've also got 
Barney. Lovely Barney. Barney <laughs> makes a, a comeback in this and Barney gets a job in the end. Of- They're always Is- aware that there's the welfare officer coming. Always. This dark, always. ominous person. Look, maybe we could get Rosalie Ham to read from page 102 from The Dressmaker's Secret. So this is the entrance of the welfare officer and it begins on Monday, just as everyone was about to start peeling spuds and running the bath for their youngsters, the children up and down the Collingwood Street fled, gates crashing shut and front doors slamming. A dark, coat-clad figure appeared on the footpath at the end of the block, growing larger as he progressed. He kicked aside abandoned hopscotch tours, cricket bats and footballs. Eyes peeped through lace curtains and from behind foliage. Where was the child welfare department officer heading? Whose house? What reports and files were in that briefcase lighting his big hand? Someone shouted, watch out, but it was too late. The welfare officer was already at the vacant block on the corner. He studied the large piebald half-draft horse dozing under a fruit tree, a galah perched between his ears. Standing on its back, reaching up into the tree and stuffing apricots into their pockets, socks, shirts, hats and skirts were several children, McSwiney Sprogs. A stone flew past his ear from behind and hit the ground near the horse, who opened its eyes and gently turned its head in the direction of the officer. The welfare officer took a file from his case, George, Victoria, Charles, Henry and Charlotte. He looked up. That would be the imbecile child, Barney, standing beside the horse, holding the hand of the youngster, Rex. You're stealing, he called, and the horse is not safe. He was a plague on their lives. You never gave him a name. But I think, Rosalie Ham, you enjoyed writing this dark presence. Oh, gosh, it's such fun. I had a huge amount of fun revisiting the people yeah. of Dungata. They're all horrible. But the trick is to make them likeable. I don't think the welfare officer was particularly likeable at all. But in terms of being a villain mm. in a story, I think he does quite a good job. He does. Just as the sergeant was always a nice guy, he in- introduces... Tilly to his crowd at the Hippocampus Club. Now, this was the most unusual club. The first thing we're told was how to escape. Don't cloak your coat. Keep it close to you. Why is this? Well, it's highly illegal. These are people that don't fit into Melbourne society. These are people that dress in order that they feel more themselves and wear a costume on the street that depicts them as being normal members of upright 1950s. So they all gather in this social venue to enjoy each other's company and be themselves. And so, of course, they're always under the threat of being of raid from the, the police force, etc. And so they have a very secure venue. This is also a time that divorce wasn't seen to be um, the proper thing. And we're introduced to the actress Nita Orland. And she said to Tilly, I have had no misfortune. I have triumphed over prejudice and oppression. How did the divorced Nita Orland and Tilly become friends? Oh, through couture, through clothing. 
But it all came from the Hippocampus Club because Nita Orland, being an actress, pursued and different and, you know, not your ordinary person that would fit happily and easily into a lot of 50s society. We used to hang out at the Hippocampus Club. Great theatre. Everything would have appealed to her enormously about that place. She would have met Sergeant Farrett there. We need to talk about the frocks. There's so much fun. There's a description of materials, styles, parades, and even the depths of Flinders Lane. And I'm not going to say which characters because there was a lot of interesting characters in this. And quote from the book, they retreated to bed with a stack of fashion magazines. And when they tired of looking at shoes and frocks, they let lust take its pent-up course. Looking at shoes and frocks, I, I must get a description of a frock from you and this is from page 252 and this is a sea frock that was designed by Tilly and the wearer just loved it and described it as this. Esmeralda walked towards herself, the hem kicking out. The discreet pleat that fell from the navel level burst open and little surprises of sun spray pleats, the colour of sky frothed like small white caps on busy little waves. She was a choppy shore of azure satin and scattered all over her ocean-coloured gown were seahorses, brocaded in rainbow colours and tiny explosions of swimming sea creatures. Esmeralda stopped and saw that the fitted bodice was insouciantly interrupted by the inverted pleat, which piqued the eye's curiosity and drew it down to the seabed where seaweed swayed around the hem. She twirled and the pleat danced out like turbulent sea. Delightful, playful, but respectful, cheeky, but sublimely so. Well, Rosalie Ham gave us Tilly Dunnage from Dungatar in her debut novel and has followed it with another story of fun and frocks in The Dressmaker's Secret. Thank you very much, Rosalie. Thank you. Thank you. And now it's David's turn. None shall sleep. The title of my book today becomes Nessum Dorma, if said in Italian. So what has opera to do with a psychological thriller about a serial killer? Well, the author, Ellie Marnie, is about to tell us. So, Ellie, welcome to 3CR. Hi, David. It's lovely to be here. Nessum Dorma, None Shall Sleep. Turandot, it's an intriguing connection. Yeah, I borrowed a few classical references for this book. But you've also referenced Rumpelstiltskin. And believe it or not, Turandot and Rumpelstiltskin have something in common. Yeah, it's the focus on names, uh, not knowing people's names or having secret names revealed during the course of a mystery. So that was something that I wanted to play around with a little bit in this manuscript. So Turandot is actually said no one shall sleep until she can find the name of her would-be lover and Rumpelstiltskin has issued the decree that if they find out his name then they are released but then that ties in with this novel because we're looking for the name of a serial killer. (laughs) Yes, the whole story is a puzzle so the readers are chasing after the answers in the same way as the protagonists. So I've got my two key protagonists, Emma Lewis and Travis Bell. They're two teenagers who've been recruited by the FBI to interview incarcerated juvenile offenders. 
and uh, they get caught up in an active homicide case that the FBI is pursuing when one of the juvenile offenders that they interview starts giving them insights and information into this case. Just before we get into the story proper, you actually make another reference and raise the spectre of the Romantic era poet Byron. There is a pleasure in the pathless woods. There is a rapture on the lonely shore. There is society where none intrudes by the deep sea and music in its roar. I love not man the less, but nature more. From these our interviews in which I steal from all I may be or have been before to mingle with the universe and feel what I can ne'er express, yet cannot all conceal. That was a lovely recitation. Thank you. I've never actually connected romanticism with serial killers, but it makes sense. It certainly does. I mean, look, I don't know how many people are aware of the fact that when Harris was constructing the character of Hannibal Lecter, he was borrowing a lot from imagery and mythology about vampires. So when I came to write None Shall Sleep uh, and I was constructing the character of my juvenile sociopath, Simon Goodmanson, I didn't want to use the vampire imagery because I thought, oh, well, that's been done before. But I loved the idea of this cold, inhuman figure. So I I borrowed quite a lot from the imagery of the fairy prince. So someone who's a little bit ethereal or unearthly, their attractiveness, the intelligence and um, focus on wit and also someone who's very cold and has a very calculated way of interacting with people. Romanticism deals with this sense of an overwhelming emotion, which has often been put to a more productive end, but then, yes, you turn it on its head, and that overwhelming emotion you can't express, so Mm. you take to killing people as a form of... (laughs) Emotional release. A type of catharsis, I suppose. <laughs> You've mentioned Emma Lewis, uh, who's recruited an adolescent. Her partner here is Travis Bell. They both have experience with serial killers. Yeah. All of my books are YA books. So I write exclusively for young adults. And I also exclusively write crime So one of the key issues with making a teenage protagonist plausible in, you know, that kind of scenario when they're dealing with adult law enforcement is you have to give them some kind of connection to either the crime or the perpetrator or the victim of that crime. So Emma Lewis is 18 years old and... She's a current college student in the US because that's where the book is based. But two and a half years ago, she was kidnapped by a serial offender uh, and was the only girl to survive. Um, So she's a serial killer survivor and insight into the psychopathology of serial killers and how they think and how they behave is what, what gives her the authority to act in that adult environment where, yeah, she's being relied on for information. 
I'm a little concerned now as to how true to life this might be in terms of how many adolescent serial killers are there out there (laughs) and where did you get your information or is this just a product of your imagination? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I actually did quite a lot of research on juvenile serial killers and also how young um, serial offenders start. Um, And that was really quite eye-opening, which is that, you know, a lot of serial murderers actually do start very young. And certainly a lot of their formative childhood experiences help to create the conditions where they start offending or they, they, it helps them to develop that psychopathology that encourages them to offend. Another concern I have is Edmund Cooper, who's the FBI agent yeah. who roots Emma and Travis. One ha- would have to question the psychopathology of someone like Cooper for placing adolescence in jeopardy and thinking it was acceptable. Well, that's the FBI for you. <laughs> now, well, this book is set in 1982. So I don't know how much people know about the behavioural science unit of the FBI, but that unit really kicked off in about 1972. Some of your listeners might have watched the show Mindhunter, which was a uh, dramatisation of the book Mindhunter by John Douglas, which kind of goes into the detail of how the behavioural science unit developed and how they developed this brand new idea of uh, criminal profiling. And that was when they first got the idea to start going into jails um, and interviewing serial killers to find out their processes and their thought patterns to try and figure out their psychology, I guess. So I figured between 1972 and 1982, in that first decade, when behavioural science was still in its infancy, that they would still be doing some sort of wacky, risk-taking, innovative things. Getting adolescents to interview other adolescents to overcome that barrier between adolescent and adult. Yeah, that's right. Um, And I figured the CIA was experimenting with ESP and LSD and all that sort of stuff in like the 70s. And I figured the FBI was still doing um, innovative things. So the idea of recruiting a couple of teenagers to get through to juvenile serial killers wouldn't be out of the range of possibility, you know. One person that you've already mentioned that uh, Emma has to interview is Simon Gutmanson, And he's sort of held in a silence of the lambs type incarceration. But those interviews between Emma and Simon can be quite unnerving. Yes, Simon was a lot of fun to write as a character. He's incarcerated at St. Elizabeth's Institution for the Criminally Insane, which is a real hospital, by the way, in Washington, D.C. And he is incredibly bright so he's uh, in the 98th percentile for his IQ range and you know he's got all of those elements of charm and charisma that you kind of associate with this pop culture idea of the serial killer so it's actually quite challenging to write someone who's incredibly bright and who's 
who's always 10 steps ahead of everybody else in the room. So that's always a challenge. And, um, and also you have to write him in an age-appropriate way. He can also get under Emma's skin, though. Yeah, he's very insightful. He's very perceptive. His personal inclination is to needle people, to unsettle them in order for him to find a place where he can take advantage. Another psychological layer, then, is Simon's twin sister, Kirsten, which raises other interesting psychopathologies of connection and control and justification. Yeah, I loved writing Kristen. She comes across as this kind of floaty, frothy, kind of off with the fairies type character. But she's also one of these people who are like completely emotionally open. Like she, she's a very vulnerable, damaged character because she's grown up in the shadow of all the things that her notorious twin brother has done. And she's kind of living in her own asylum. But yeah, she and Simon have this strange kind of codependent relationship and they're they're never really apart. And so she becomes a way for Emma and Travis to dig a little deeper into the things that might give them an advantage when they're dealing with Simon. This leads us, of course, back to Turandot and Rumpelstiltskin. None shall sleep because Simon knows the name of the serial killer that Cooper is looking for. But, of course, the reader and listener are going to have to read it for themselves to find (laughs) who the person is, the name of the serial killer. So, ultimately, Emma and Travis can do what adults can't do, and they can form a connection with another adolescent to capture a serial killer. So, Ellie... The book is None Shall Sleep, or Nessum Dorma, the author, Ellie Marnie, and it is an Alan and Unwin release. So, Ellie, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me and letting me ramble a little bit about serial killers. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, We will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's talk then. (laughs) (laughs) Listen in next week. Bye for now. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.